0: come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to lliw.net to register. Who is the king of the jungle? Ooh, ooh, for the Bible tells me so. And he said, "Zacchaeus, you come down." <laughs> I, I like church because I sing songs in Sabbath school about Jesus and God. I like church because I get to spend time with my family and because I get to learn about Jesus. I get to s- spend time with God and other Christians. That it has cool art. We make cool art. Um, I like playing the ukulele. Seeing animal vespers and um playing ukulele. I like singing with my friends about God. I like church because past the dog is cheesy. I like the Sabbath school class because it's a lot of fun. I like coming here. Most uh, my friends they're here and I mostly come and I come here for the food too. It's good because I know I'm gonna get some food at church, right? So it's nice. But then again, the clothes are like kind of like annoying to wear. So yes, oh, yeah, I'm excited for the LLUC building and there's, it's really cool. What I like about church is the depths of Randy's geology, it moves me. Yes, I'm happy when I sing. We have some brilliant kids. (laughs) First service, I didn't know that was coming, and it threw me off. (laughs) took me half the sermon to recover. (laughs) Isn't it great to see the kids here up front, center, ministering for Jesus? What a wonderful, wonderful Sabbath experience. We're in a generation sermon series. We started six weeks ago, and six weeks ago our questions were questions like, what does each generation of our church's community contribute to the church? What is each generation's dream for the church? And we've taken it a week at a time, a generation at a time, looking at those realities. And at the end of the day, we have come again and again to the conclusion, we are better together. We are better when we're multi-generational, when every generation is part of what we do. And so today we come to children. We've saved the best for last. We come to the children. I was thinking when we were first conceiving this series and these sermons, what is the best statement in Scripture about children? What can we learn from what children can contribute? And my mind went immediately to the words of Jesus although not the ones you may first think about. The first, one we, first ones we think about are the ones where the mothers brought the children to Jesus, the disciples tried to keep them away, and Jesus said, no, 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 let them come. My kingdom is made up of these. Beautiful statement, but that's not the one to which I want to turn today. There's a different statement in which a child can teach us much about what it means to be followers of Jesus. But before we come to that, I just want to share with you a little bit about children. A lot of us here are parents. Some are grandparents. You're around kids, and you know that what is true of kids, if anything else is true, is that they're honest. They will say what comes to their mind, obviously depending on their age, and at times to the great chagrin of the parents. So I went online and found a website that had a title something like this proof that children are out to embarrass their parents. And then there followed a number of stories. I want to share a few of those stories with you this morning. First one here is from a mom who wrote, my daughter's daycare had circle time every morning as a way to start the day. Well, we were late that day and walked into the middle of circle time upon which my daughter blurted out, we're late because my mommy had diarrhea. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? Or what about this from another mother who said, My daughter decided to strip completely naked, nappy and all, diaper and all, in the shop when I had my back turned for about five seconds. I only became aware of what had happened when a lovely lady tapped me on the shoulder and whispered into my ear, Excuse me, love, your child is dancing naked beside the potatoes. (laughs) One of those horrifying moments as a mom. Or what about this one from a father? We were riding the bus, and my daughter laid her hand on the shoulder of the man seated in front of us and in a loud voice declared, this man is very fat. (laughs) Wouldn't you just want to get off the bus and totally disappear? Or what about this one from a father who said, My daughter is eight now, but when she was two, I taught her to say, Behold, instead of look. We'd be at the store, and she'd point at whatever thing she saw, and she'd say, Daddy, behold. (laughs) That's a certain religious ring to it, doesn't it? And we can't go without talking about the teachers. I hear from teachers that our kids go to school and say things, you know, about home. So one teacher writes, During the Christmas holiday classroom party, a boy comes up to me with a gift bag and says, Here, teacher, my mom got this present. She didn't want it. She called everyone in our family, and they didn't want it either. So they said, Just bring it to school and give it to you. (laughs) That's where you get that deep sense of value from. And another teacher says, as Christmas approached, a boy announced, Santa Claus isn't real. One of my bright students came to me in tears and said, Miss A, he's disrespecting my religious beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's one more. This is actually from a different source, but a true story. I don't know if you're ready for this one. As I was trying to pack for vacation... My 3-year-old daughter was having a wonderful time playing on the bed. At one point she said, "Mom, look at this," and she stuck out her two fingers. Trying to keep her entertained, I reached out and stuck her fingers in my mouth pretending to eat them. Then I rushed out of the room again. When I returned, my daughter was standing on <coughs> <laughs> My daughter was standing on the bed with a devastated look on her face. Mommy, she said, where's my booger? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Kids, they'll just say what's true, make the observation wherever they are who they are. And we love them for that reason, although on a few occasions we have some words. And that's the generation we come to today, the children. So is there something children contribute to the church? Is there something the children can teach us who are a bit further down the road about what it means to be a Christ follower? So I want to go to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, the 18th chapter, Matthew chapter 18. It's here in the 18th chapter that Jesus uses a child to say something to his disciples, something that rocks them back on their heels. They're rocked back on their sandal heels, surprised, amazed maybe at what he says. In fact, what he says there has enough power to rock us back on our heels even two millennia later. You know how we commonly accept that it's the adults that teach the children? Well, in this case, it will be the child who will teach the adults. So in Matthew's gospel, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 1, we read this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child whom he placed among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So the disciples come to Jesus with a question about status, and privilege and position in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus uses a child to respond. Mark, when he tells us of this story in his gospel, adds a bit more context. Mark says, they had been on a trip. They were traveling through Galilee. They arrived at Capernaum. They went into the house where they were staying. They sat down. And when they sat down, Jesus said to the disciples, So, tell me. What were you arguing about on the way? It kind of gives the impression that maybe the disciples held back a little. They were just out of earshot, but that Jesus knew that they were arguing and doubtless knew what it was about. But he gets there and says, so tell me, what was at issue? What was at stake? It's kind of like the parent driving the kids on the field trip. Parents, have you ever noticed this? When you're the driver and the kids are in the back seat or if you're in the van, they're in the back two or three seats, somehow they think that you lost your hearing and they say all kinds of things. It's amazing what they'll say. You're driving away. Jesus is driving. Disciples in the back seat. They're fighting. That's where the best sibling fights happen, in the back seat. He's driving down. He gets to the destination. He says, all right, I want to know. What were you fighting about? And Mark says... They kept quiet. Nobody said. Now, Luke does something interesting when he tells this same story. Because in Luke's gospel, it's true in Mark's as well, but somehow it feels more direct in Luke. In Luke's gospel, there is an incident right before this one that is directly tied to this. Over in Matthew, where we just read it from, that other incident is there, but it has a third incident sandwiched between them. So you don't have as close of a tie. But Luke says, this is what happened. The other incident, Jesus warning them, telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be given over into the hands of sinners. I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And then immediately after that, they start fighting over who's greatest in the kingdom. And I want to say, wait wait a minute. Wait just a Galilean minute. What are you talking about? He just said, I'm going to die, and your next statement is, who's greatest? This is unbelievable. Now, we're not exactly sure what they were thinking But the thought has arisen that maybe some of them are even thinking, if he's gone, then who's going to be in charge? Or they may just be at their old battle again. Who's first? Now, I saw a lot of things in my years of chaplaincy. I worked on a couple of oncology units a trauma-intensive care, worked on some units where end-of-life issues were very real. And over those years, I had the privilege, the inestimable privilege of being with many families as they came to the end of the road. I've seen a lot of things happen at that time, but I want to tell you one thing I never saw, at least not directly in the room. I never saw a dying parent in the bed with adult children standing around the bed fighting over who got the most out of the will. I never saw that. Now, I knew of it happening outside of the room, back home in other places. But that's, in essence, what you have here. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And they say, who's greatest? Who's getting the biggest cut? Who will have status in the kingdom? It just serves to underline how much we crave the power, the spotlight, the status that comes with being top of the heap. You say, well, that was true of Jesus and his disciples, but that was another world, another day, another time. Surely we're not so caught up in such things today. Well, just think about it. Have you asked or heard asked questions like these? Who's first chair in the orchestra? Who's going to be the starting quarterback? Who got the front row middle of the auditorium seats at the play? Who got the best seats on the bus for the field trip at school? Who do you think will get the president's office when the race ballots or counted. Time and again, there is that interest, that desire, and at times that drive to get top spot. Now, some will say, "Well, wait, wait a minute. That's just I'm just taking care of myself. I'm just taking care of my own needs. I'm looking out for myself. If you don't look out for yourself, no one else will." It's true. It's legitimate. Ashley, brilliant. Maybe a name you remember if you were around back in the 70s. Ashley Brilliant was a writer of interesting and unusual verses for hippie postcards. Write all kinds of things that had unexpected twists to them. Like one he wrote said, When you're shooting at the target, whatever you hit, just make that the target. <laughs> then you're a great shot. Or he said, My sources are very questionable, but man, their information is amazing. (laughs) But the one that interests me today is this one. Ashley Brilliant, writing, said, The only expectation I have of life is that I receive a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. That's it, he said. It's the only expectation I have. Just give me a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. Now, we hear that and we say, oh, no, 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 Uh, no, 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 no. That's not me. I would never say that. But, you know, I have wondered. I've wondered, what if what goes on in here were known out here? I wonder how many of you might join me in hanging our heads in shame. They're asking about status. How can we get the top spot? I remember saying when I was a kid, I don't know who came up with it, but my guess is it was some beleaguered parent that came up with it. It would get stated first by parents, and then even the kids took it up when they had other kids that were beating them out of the top spot. It would happen when something was about to be given away or engaged upon. We were about to play a new game or birthday cake was being given out, and all the kids are crowded around, and they're all saying, me first, me first, me first. And somebody came up with this saying, me firsters don't go to heaven. (laughs) How's that for a little self-righteous dictum? me-firsters don't go to heaven. Well, you know, whether we like the saying or not, it may have its roots in this experience, Jesus with a child talking to his disciples. And what is it that he says? When they ask him their question, he, he stands the child in front of them and says unless you change you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you change that's an interesting Greek word because what it literally means is turn around what the word is describing is somebody who's moving assertively in this direction and suddenly something pulls them up and they turn around, and they head off in another direction. That's the word, unless you change. It's kind of like taking a trip with a friend that knows the way. The friend falls asleep. You drive for an hour or two. When the friend wakes up and looks around, doesn't recognize the surroundings, says to you, Oh, no, 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 no. You took the wrong Oh, we're never going to get there going this way. we got to turn around. That's what Jesus says to them. Unless you change, that attitude of shooting for top spot in the kingdom has got to change or you won't even be in the kingdom. That's where the child comes in. So now our question is about this child. What can this child teach us about kingdom values, kingdom principles, kingdom qualities? Well, Bible students throughout history, throughout the last couple of thousand years, have wrestled with, what, with that. What exactly was Jesus trying to say by using the child? Was he talking about a child's innocence, a child's sincerity, a child's joy, a child's optimism, a child's tendency to include others? What exactly was he addressing? Well, the truth is we have to ask that question not about the children of our day, but about the children of Jesus' day. What could he have been saying? Because all of those qualities, all those characteristics of children are wonderful and to be desired, but we intuitively recognize that children are not always all of those things and sometimes can be quite the reverse of that. So, Jesus, what are you saying? Let me read to you the words of the preacher and writer Gary Thomas who provides a window for us into Jesus' statement. Thomas writes, In the first century, children enjoyed little esteem and virtually no respect. While families appreciated their own children, society merely tolerated them. The very language of the day reveals this first century prejudice. One Greek word word for child, pais or paedion, also can mean servant or slave. Yet another, nepios, carries connotations of inexperience, foolishness, and helplessness. Greek philosophers regularly chided a stupid or foolish man by calling him nepios. Indeed, even biblical writers admonish Christians to stop thinking like children. Paideia. Imagine them. The people's astonishment when Jesus brings a troublesome, noisy child and places him in front of the crowd with his hand on the lad's shoulder, Jesus has the audacity to suggest that this small type provides an example to be followed. So exactly what is that example? Remember the question the disciples ask. They're asking a question about status. How do I achieve a higher, how do I achieve the highest status? The way Jesus responds is to bring before them a child who in his day, in his world, had no status. Children, in fact, generally speaking, didn't even enjoy equal protection under the law. In the Roman world, a father had such power, often referred to as patria potestas, had such power that a father could discipline his children with any severity he so desired, including even killing them, and not face legal repercussions. No status. No standing. And so when they say, Jesus, how do we get top status? Jesus says, you want to know how? Be like this child. No concern for status, for prestige, for power in the kingdom of God. That turns things on their head. Because they are, in essence, asking, How do we get the top spot? And Jesus is, in essence, answering, Be the runt of the litter. That's how. That's how you become the top dog in the kingdom. It's upside down, he says. If you really want to know about status in the kingdom, then let go of your interest in status. That's hard to take. And it's a child who stands there and teaches it. Now, you might say, well, but that was that world. Things were different. But we have status in our world today. It's not always illegitimate either. Sometimes it's very legitimate. Most places you look, you can see evidences of status. Look to the military. You're a private first class, you're a colonel, you're a five-star general. Look to academia. Are you an associate professor, assistant professor, a full professor? We find status in many places. You can ask yourself, where do I stand on that? Do I have a BA? an MA, a PhD? Do I drive a Ford, a BMW, or a Tesla? My house, 1,500 square feet, 2,500 square feet, 15,000 square feet. At, at, At work, do I have an office? Do I have a small office? Do I have the corner office with the windows overlooking the mountains? Have I published? Have I published a couple of small pieces in church journals? Or is my CV several pages long with publications in peer reviewed journals that are both national and internationally recognized? There is status everywhere we look, and some of it is very valid. Who would, for example, ever discourage a young person who says, I want to get a PhD in chemistry, a PhD in mathematics? No one, certainly not I, would discourage that. I need to get this research published. It's important enough. It needs to be in a peer-reviewed journal that will be recognized, and I would say, go to it. Jesus is not here speaking about the military or academia or the business world. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven recognizing that the world around us functions many times out of necessity in those ways, Jesus wants to underscore the reality that when we enter the kingdom of heaven, all of those distinctions fall away, become unimportant. After all, if I were a military person, and I were trying to recruit you for the military, who would I want to have stand here, a private first class or a five-star general? I'd bring in the five-star general. Have that general speak of what it can mean, what it can be from where she or he started and how they have attained what they are. That builds a dream in people. Jesus does just the opposite. He says, you want to know about the kingdom of heaven? Look at this child. This is status in the kingdom of heaven, someone who is unconcerned about their status. Have you ever paused to reflect, paused to ponder what that looks like in real life? Take our church as an example. We are nestled here in the heart of two institutions, a medical center and a university. We're nestled here between two worlds where status matters, where it of necessity counts. And so this church made a decision. This will be a reminder to some of you who have been here for many years, years ago, years before I became a part of the pastoral team. They made a decision that when we come to church, we want status of the outside world, even that very close outside world on either side of us, we want it to disappear so here they said everybody will go by their first names you may be doctor smith up in the hospital but when you come to church you're john you may be doctor jones at the university but when you come to church you're mary because here the outward symbols of status must disappear because this is the kingdom of heaven in fact You can test yourself on that. If you are Dr. Jones or Dr. Smith and somebody here at church calls you John or Mary and you're offended, you may want to go back and revisit Matthew 18 because this place here, this isn't business or academia. This isn't the science world or the military world. This represents one of the ways we enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, one longtime Christ follower put it this way: "If you want to test how well you're doing as a servant, then ask how you respond when somebody treats you like one." That'll give you an indication. Reminds me of Dale Henry, the motivational speaker was at an event, speaking at an event was a mainline speaker at an event in Phoenix. After he had done his speaking, was ready to leave, he was standing outside waiting for the shuttle. He said, I was dressed, had on my blue blazer, my khaki pants, white shirt, yellow tie, but he said it was hot out there, one of those hot days in Phoenix. He said, as I'm standing there, this older gentleman, very nicely dressed with luggage, came up to me and said, can you you get my luggage, please? i got to get it on the bus. So Henry picked up the luggage, put it on the bus, Gentleman didn't tip him but kind of said thank you and then Henry followed him onto the bus. He said, where are you going? He said, well, this is my bus. What do you mean your bus? This is my bus. You don't work here? No. What, what are you doing here? He said, I'm the speaker for this event that just happened. <laughs> he said, what are you doing carrying my baggage? He said, because I just make it a habit when I'm asked to do something, I do it. If you want to test How you're doing with the status issue. Ask yourself, how do I do when somebody treats me like a servant, calls me by my first name, tempts me to think, do you know who you're talking to? And remember Jesus, hand on a child, Jesus looking at you in essence saying, learn a lesson from this teacher That in the kingdom of heaven, entry and status belong to those who are unconcerned about status. That's what the child teaches us. It's a lesson we cannot avoid learning because if we learn that lesson, it changes the texture, the nature of the church. It changes our witness to the world around us. We do as Jesus said, we come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give our lives for the good of the world. All from the example of a child. I read a piece of movie dialogue this past week, a movie I haven't seen, but after I read this, I want to see it. It's a children's movie, a movie called Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web, I understand, is about a pig named Wilbur and a spider named Charlotte. They're in the barn, but the problem is Wilbur has figured out that come the end of the season, he's going to be on the table, if you know what I mean. So his life is now filled with anxiety and worry and what's going to happen. He's really struggling. And so Charlotte begins to weave with her web. She begins to weave words that describe Wilbur for her. Terrific. Wonderful. Kind. She's trying to encourage Wilbur. And then she weaves her last word. The word, humble. Well, Wilbur's touched by all of this. But as he ponders that last word, he says, I I, I don't know, Charlotte. I mean, is that a good word? She says, what do you mean? He says, well, I mean, is it true? I don't feel like I deserve that. You don't feel like you deserve that? No, I don't. And Charlotte says, Then it's exactly the right word. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the caliber and quality of person that enters his kingdom, that receives his blessing and his smile. That's what the child teaches us having learned that lesson, heard it, and continuing to grow in that direction, I then have to say, isn't it clear that we are better together? Gracious God, we thank you for the children, the children among us, the children who are full of joy and sincerity and surprises The children, Lord, who challenge our patience, challenge us to think, sometimes frustrate us. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who saw in the child a shining example of the kingdom of heaven. Might we take in and take home that lesson that true humility, the humility that is a kingdom quality, is found in those. Who are not concerned about status. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.